Good morning, Lansing. It's Saturday, it's 9 a.m., and the pet experts are in the building. This is the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS and 1320WILS.com. Now, here are your hosts, Rick Pruce and Lee Cohen. Welcome, pet keepers, to this week's MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. I'm your host, Lee Cohen, here with my co-host, the pet expert himself, Mr. Rick Pruce. Good morning, Rick. Lee, it's always nice to... Get together with you once a week. Well, it is fun, and when I say to people that you are the pet expert, there are some areas where that's more so the case, and there are some areas where it's less so, but boy, I'm hitting you in a good spot these last two weeks, because last week's show, if it isn't your expertise, I don't think there are too many people who know more about ponds and water gardens than you do in this area, and I got to say, I'm just thinking that more and more people are going to be thinking, I want water near to where I live. So I suspect you're going to be very busy at the store. Well, as soon as it starts uh, creeping above uh, 60 degrees, everybody comes in. I know right now we're prepping up a a vacuum. We We rent or sell vacuums that you can go out and you can actually clean the bottom. And right now, that's the thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. If you've got a pond and you can clean it up so that your season in front in front of you is a lot less effort and a lot more pleasure, that's what you want to do. So, yeah, warm weather's coming. Still not there yet. Don't want to be putting any fish out there. But it is a time to plan. And if you want to do a pond or water garden, come in and talk to us. Um, we've got liner. We've got uh, we've got all the pumps and circulators and anything and everything you might want, but more importantly, it's information. Well, not to mention you also have the chemistry that is needed for the water to make it work. We can always test the water, and we can always talk about what does it take to make a pond really healthy. Uh, One of the things that people don't know is, uh, you know, if you have well water, there's steps you can take to kind of bring down the pH of the water, and by doing that, a lot more things happen. The ecology is just a lot better than using direct well. If you're in Lansing City water, you got a pretty good natural water to work with. So if you're in Lansing City and you want to put in a pond or water garden, have a little more confidence, have a little less work. So Right. Uh, I just know that that, to me, is one of the more fascinating things about aquatics is the degree to which the water chemistry is something that you're always managing, always playing with. And it's interesting to me because some people say, why did I have to take science in school? I'm never going to use that in my real life. Well, guess again, because I got to imagine you use science just about every day of your life. Yeah, I mean, and, and pond water gardens don't need a lot of water testing. It's not necessarily a lot of work. I think most of it, whether it's a fish tank or a pond or water garden, you know, the more you can kind of just know ahead of time what you're doing, the less trouble, less issue, less problems you have. When, when the problems we have showing up at the testing hut, especially with fish tanks, is just people not knowing they need to be cautious and careful going forward. Once they understand the kind of the general rules of the of the of the hobby. Um, they just have a lot less problems. Right. Well, the battle is usually won before it's ever fought, (laughs) and that's what I hear you saying. Now, what I find interesting about this week's show is, once again, you're taking me to a place, Rick, where I wouldn't necessarily think of crawfish or crayfish, however you want to describe them, based on what part of the country that you're from, Uh, but... 
I never would have thought of them yeah. in a tank. Yeah. I, when I think of them, I think of all of these new lobster and crab restaurants opening that, that up. That say, hey, would you like crawfish? It's on the menu. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't know. I've never tried that before up here. Right. Down south, you probably you know do it every other weekend at a nice, uh, what, a crawfish boil. Right. Boil, I think. So, yeah. Uh, you know, for up here, we're just not that familiar with it. And to bring up a radio show that's going to be centered around crawfish, um, you know, that's kind of a strange one. But I think what you will learn is that here in Michigan, we've got a little bit of a problem. So we want to bring that up too. You know, these creatures that we have in our tanks need to stay in our tanks. And certainly when the the government, uh, the DNR, identifies something as a potential hazard, you know, um, we got to respect that and appreciate that. And right now we have a problem with the red swamp crawfish, mm-hmm. uh, the same one that you might have if you go down south and you're visiting some friends in Louisiana and they grab a bucket of crawfish and they show up and uh, they start dropping them in the water and uh, you start you know, popping them out of the shell and eating them. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, they uh, look like lop, little miniature lobsters, kind of, uh, with the claws. And, I mean, they really are neat. But we're going to talk about it with an MSU researcher. His name is Aaron Sullivan. Uh, you know him because what the heck. If there's a Michigan State fishery student who hasn't worked at Proust Pets, then mm-hmm. good luck with that one. But we're going to talk with him about the condition of crawfish and the research that he's doing with Michigan State, and it's really fascinating, and it's going to be a great story. And then at the end, we'll let you talk about how to put them in a fish tank and enjoy the heck out of these creatures, because first it was the shrimp, and now it's the crawfish. What else are we going to find for these tanks? Uh, Lots of great stuff this week on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILF. Welcome back to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And, Rick, we have with us on the line a first-time guest. His name is Aaron Sullivan, and he is a recent graduate from MSU and a researcher. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you, thank you. Oh, our pleasure. The reason we wanted to have you on, Aaron, is because uh, Rick has just mentioned a word last week in the studio. He mentioned crawfish. And I admit to you, I was very intrigued by that subject because having lived on a lake when the water receded and you dug not very far down, guess what it was that we were finding right in my backyard. So I am really interested to know, tell us about how you got involved with crawfish, crayfish, however you want to describe it. Yeah, so uh, the way I got into researching crayfish was actually uh, being asked to come on and help with a diet predation study. Now, the crayfish I work with are an invasive species in Michigan, but they are native to the U.S., more uh, your south, southeastern uh, states in northern Mexico, uh, the red swamp crayfish, that is. Now, we believe they got into Michigan uh, a few ways, either the pet trade, you know, uh, food also, these are... Uh, pretty heavily aquaculture species that you see at all the big crawfish boils. 
And by some means, you know, they got out and they are now causing some problems in uh, some of the areas in the southeastern portion of the state. I was, I was going to want to mention, um, in the last, I would say, five years, I've personally known two employees, you and Sam, as well as a friend of ours, Doug, that all, for one reason or another, in the midst of their journey through school, ended up landing positions or research opportunities and uh, study exploration into crawfish. So there has to be a bit of concern that the state must have in order to have this kind of intense research. I'm seeing a small glimpse, but you probably can back up a little bit and tell us how big of a problem is this and how seriously is the state taking it? Absolutely. So these crayfish are extremely prolific. You know, one female could have an excess of 500 babies attached to her abdomen during the breeding season, which you can imagine very quickly gets out of hand. And another reason they're a huge concern is uh, the burrowing behavior that a lot of crayfish uh, express, um, even some of our native species. But the thing with these red swamp crayfish is they don't just dig a singular channel. You have a main channel down, but then, you know, several offshoots, which are very concerning in terms of stability of the banks. You know, some of these ponds I've, I've seen the past three years now, I've watched just get wider and wider every year, and that's a direct uh, cause from these this burrowing behavior. And um, how competitive are they with our indigenous crawfish? Very, very much so. Uh, they eat a variety of foods, anything from natural uh, macrophytes and plant matter to predating on animals, and uh, they're a lot larger of a species than most of our natives here in Michigan. Do you happen to know, you know, historically, I mean, if they've been part of the United States but not part of Michigan, what have been some of the natural barriers that have kept them from being part of Michigan in the historical past? And um, you know, was there any thought prior to this of, like, maybe they wouldn't be able to survive in Michigan? Any idea of the history of this? Yeah, so they do reach fairly uh, northern U.S. You know, they, there are some wild populations in the Carolinas, for example. And what we, you know, think uh, a natural barrier to this is, is they really prefer your more stagnant, you know, water conditions, not a lot of moving. And really the only direct highway up here would be the Mississippi River, which uh, they don't tend to like all that much. So it just made, made, but they don't seem to have any thermal issue. Obviously, they they're they're surviving our Michigan winters okay. Oh yeah, as long as you know they stay within the water table, not becoming uh, crayicles, we'll call it. <laughs> uh, they can be absolutely just fine. Is there hope? I mean, what's the prognosis on on trying to? I, I assume anytime a invasive species to the area has been introduced. You know, sometimes it seems like it just muddles down to how can we control it, kind of like lamprey. How do we control it as opposed to how do we get rid of it? I would assume that would be the same case with the crawfish. Yes, exactly. Um, with, you know, the the final hope is, of course, eradication. Uh, of course, easier said than done. Um, right now, it's more just maintaining uh, them in the certain areas they are and trying to trying to uh, find any kinds of uh, highways they could take to infest other areas of the state. And that's kind of where a part of the telemetry comes into play. The word telemetry, can you give the audience uh, an understanding of what you mean by telemetry and how that um, uh, applies to crawfish? 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, we'll go into most of the radio telemetry uh, that's really used not just in you know a research uh, community. It really boils down to being able to uh, manually track something at a distance. So, uh, for example, NASCARs, uh, they're able to read, you know, the uh, logistics of the car's speed or any other issues. That could be defined as telemetry. In my case, it involves uh, a big antenna. You know, you can imagine a, a 90s TV antenna on top of a roof, which I carry around. And I have these little uh, tags which we adhere to the backs of the crayfish that give off uh, a radio signal, which is then uh, audible through the receiver that I use. So you would, like, collect a crawfish that you found that's not supposed to be there, put some uh, marker on it, and then release it? Exactly. Okay. And then, so what, with, and, and are there other ways in which you are tracking them, or mainly through these signals? Uh, mainly through these signals, uh, you know, we do have a way we uh, decide whether we're going to survey a water body is we actually do take uh, eDNA samples. So just like humans shed skin cells, which you're able to identify environment, same being with these crayfish, and we'll survey for that environmental DNA prior to uh, putting effort into trapping, telemetry, et cetera. So you've probably got, a, what, a few years into this? Yep, this will be my fourth field season. Looking forward to it. And, and and let me ask, how how prevalent are these crawfish now? Uh, we have about 30 to 50 documented sites with them. But again, they're most isolated to the southeastern portion of the states with a few outliers uh, uh, westward. But again, more pertaining to the south. So that's like 30 basic water areas, like uh, generally isolated water areas or kind of common water w- areas that uh, would would spread rather substantially. Now, bear in mind, they don't like the fast water flow, so maybe that's in and of itself helpful. Right. Um, it's more the uh, Oakland, uh, Macomb counties, and uh, one hypothesis we have is these are fairly, you know, urban water bodies right in the city which are connected with uh, some drainage pipe systems, and we have hypothesized that they are moving uh, through those systems. In fact, we had uh, one site, the Sheridan Hotel, where we were able to track one of the tagged crayfish to uh, an adjacent pond across the street that has just one, excuse me, uh, one drainage network leading into it. Well, not to make a joke, but why did the crayfish cross the road? <laughs> Uh, buy more curry on the other side, I suppose. <laughs> That's where the ladies are. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question regarding these. I saw where uh, in an article from Michigan State dating back to 2021, it said that the, uh, the team at Michigan State had caught like 93,000 of these crayfish in 33 different bodies of water. Uh, That sounds like an awful lot of them. Uh, And it makes me think that is there any way to get rid of them as part of the food supply? Because when you mentioned that something boiled down, I admit you you got my uh, attention because the idea of some boiled crawfish didn't sound too bad. <laughs> well, I'll be very blunt with you. I wouldn't eat any crayfish out of some of these locations. They're uh, not the cleanest of water sources. Um, <laughs> now, you are able 
to uh, take these and use them as a food source, but the only law, you know, MDNR uh, insists on is they cannot leave the site alive. So as soon as you catch them, you do have to kill them. I guess since there are people listening in and they may come across these, uh, there's two things I think we need to do. I think we need to do a little bit of like how do we know you know, it's the type of crawfish you wouldn't mind collecting and getting rid of and one that we want to keep there. And then two, um, how would you go about killing them? Um, I'm sure those are questions that inevitably are going to be asked. For sure. Uh, to go off question two first, um, I personally would probably just, you know, give it a quick uh, whack to the head, you know, dispatch them quickly and cleanly. And uh, if you do find yourself uh, with a little crayfish visitor in your backyard, we always love pictures. So if you want to send those either to MSU or the MDNR, uh, we can ID it right then there for you. Um, in addition, one feature that these crayfish have that a lot of our natives don't are uh, chelae or the claw tubercles. So they're like little spikes right on the claw there. And, of course, if you find a, uh, a bright, bright red crayfish, chances are it's, it's probably a red swamp. And yeah. they're usually bigger, yes? Yes. Our or at least as a collective group. Yeah, I was I was going to say the ones that I saw on the lake that I lived on were relatively small. I'm guessing two inches or less, and they were almost like a muddy earth color, uh, not the bright red that I'm seeing in these. Uh, so, is that predominantly the difference in how you'll tell? So you will find some, you know just like we have all sorts of colors, you know, they can go anywhere from the bright red like you've uh, generally seen to more of a brown, even some blue morphs I've seen before. Um, there are a few other uh, ID characteristics you can look at, one being the areola, which if you're looking at the back of the crayfish, you'll find almost these two half-moon shapes on both sides. And if they end up touching and making kind of a closed appearance, that's another way you can ID a red swamp. Uh, but generally, those uh, those claw tubercles are a good deck giveaway. Gotcha. And um, I'm I'm looking at a picture here. Um, I I can see those on them. The the it's kind of a more like thornier looking claw. Yes. Yes, sir. And if you actually look too at the uh, the pincher region of those claws, the tips almost come to a little uh, curve. Like a little hook on the end. Oh, yeah, I see that. Which I will admit, if you get pinched, your first instinct is going to be to flick them off, and that can lead to a pretty nasty cut when you do that due to that little hook. Uh-huh. You've been, I have been clipped a couple times? Oh, more than I'd like to admit. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, uh, catching them was always fun because you'd do everything possible not to get pinched, and you had to pinch and grab them right from behind the back, you know. As much as you could, and then and then they'd flip, and they'd try to do everything possible to pinch you. But but uh, you you learned pretty quick not to let them do that. Yeah, you get pretty quick at it. You're right. Now, when it comes to these, we we talked about again. Uh, I hate to go back to the food supply, but I remember a scene in the movie Forrest Gump with his friend Bubba talking about all the different ways that shrimp could be prepared and eaten. And I would ask you, how similar is crawfish to 
Is it like lobster? Is it like uh, shrimp? And can it be prepared as many different ways as in that scene, which I'm sure you're familiar with? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I personally have eaten these species before. I got some family down south. Uh, they do more of the traditional boil where you got, you know, your potatoes and corn right in there, throwing you Cajun seasoning. Pretty darn good. Um, as for the taste, they it's almost a good combination of a shrimp and a lobster. You get kind of that, uh, a little bit of the sweet of the lobster, but uh, a little more firmness like a shrimp, I would describe it. Interesting. Well, we need to take a quick break, but uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk with you about where the research is going and get into the issue of having them as pets or in tanks, because you mentioned that that could be one of the things that brought them there. So let's have that conversation right after the break on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. news and information on animal care. It's the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. Here are your hosts, Rick Pruse and Lee Cohen. It's 9.35 and we're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And we're talking this morning with Aaron Sullivan, who is a recent graduate from Michigan State and is doing a good deal of research uh, for Michigan State. Aaron, what was your degree in? So my degree was in fisheries and wildlife. Actually, it was uh, concentration in disease ecology and management. But I took a wide turn into uh, invasive species control with uh, couriers. And then uh, tell me, uh, one thing that I'm aware of is that in the process of doing that, in your studies, you kind of got a little bit more deep into the crawfish and actually allowed that to be kind of part of your studies kind of on your own. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, with these being invasive species and, of course, you know, the concerns spreading to new areas, we needed to know, you know, where the heck are these crayfish going? So we implemented radio telemetry, which we attach uh, little tags to the backs of the crayfish, which emit a specific frequency. And then with my receiver unit, you actually dial into the specific frequency of that tag with your big antenna. Like I mentioned, looks like a big old 90s TV antenna. And you're actually tracking those, and the closer you get, the louder ping or the little chime your receiver will make. Up until you, you know, you're right on top of them, and it's about screaming at you. Did you? And you did a project. Um, what was it? A paper? Was it just basically explaining all of this um, that uh, I know ended up leading you to kind of an award? Yeah. So I actually designed a. Uh, a research poster and presented it at UURAF, which is an undergrad research seminar. Um, and what I looked at on that poster with the data was uh, three things. We looked at the occupancy range or the home range of the crayfish. So we got to design a little map showing exactly where they go in the area they uh, inhabited. And we also looked at the type of uh, habitat uh, they were utilizing in addition with seeing if there was any seasonality to the burrowing behavior, which uh, we can go into with um, some of the management. And so, yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about management uh, because we've got these pests out there. I guess we'll call them pests only because they're unwanted. Um, Talk a little bit about their life cycle within the whatever waterways they're in. What concerns do we have? And more importantly, what techniques are currently being used 
to gather them or what techniques are on the horizon? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, like I said, the female crayfish, I mean, these, these girls can hold up, you know, 500 babies on their abdomen at a time, which can greatly increase, you know, the population as a whole. Uh, past management efforts we've implemented have been, you know, manual trapping. We were taking G minnow traps uh, with dogs who has a bait in them and manually removing them. That's kind of how we got that uh, 93,000 statistic. Um, but one, uh, another one we tried this past summer, actually, was utilizing a, a toxicant treatment in the water uh, to eradicate them, which was all fine and dandy for crayfish in the water itself. Uh, but these guys utilized both their burrows and the water majority at the time. So while we were great at getting the guys in the water, ones in the burrows kind of had that natural barrier protection, which ultimately can lead to recolonization. Now, when you do your uh, uh, kind of hunting them down, can you actually hunt them down to the point where you're standing on the soil and they're directly underneath you? Yes, you can. So it goes right goes right through the soil. So you're you're actually able to track them not only in the water, but also through the soil. Exactly. Okay. Is it sometimes like overwhelming the number of uh, hits you get when that happens? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely uh, keeps me busy. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, so you've gone through maybe and did some chemical treatments that was able mm-hmm. to kill what was in the water, but then you were still picking up substantial amount of. Uh, um, activity, if you will, moving around activity. Yes, sir. Gotcha. Now, one question I've got is, are these exclusive to freshwater, or are they viable in saltwater as well? So they have been known to be in some estuaries, which, you know, more blackish, kind of a half-fresh, half-salt environment, but yes, majority freshwater. Yeah, so they're, they're something that you would find naturally in Louisiana. And in the midst of Louisiana, they're going to be like living wherever they can, and they probably handle some degree of salinity at some point. Yep. Interesting. Now, when it comes to the overall catching of them, how is it that people can do that without hurting themselves? Because, again, you mentioned those claws in that hook, and I'll be the first to say they're scary looking. And I can just imagine when you say you've been caught a few times more than you would like, uh, there has to be some way to get them without getting caught. How is that done? Yep, so what I like to do is uh, kind of shake them out of the trap into a, a little uh, just a little tray and very quickly try to get them at the back where their, their tail meets that uh, carapace to that back region. And, you know, they're kind of like a big old muscly guy trying to put his arms behind his head. They can't quite do it that well. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they, they really feel happy when they do, though. They can't scratch their backs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I can remember being. I remember. So we get in crawfish at the store. Um, generally, well, certainly not the, uh, the 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 swamp crawfish, red swamp crawfish. But um, I I kind of forgot about when I raised up and and. Uh, what knew to be careful, and they, there was a bunch in the bottom of a bucket, and I just went to reach in there and hand them out. And then I'm like, well, that was a 
silly thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> now, so the listening audience doesn't know this, but Aaron spent, um, uh, what was it, probably three or four years working for us at the pet store. Um, so also a hobbyist as well. Fair enough? Absolutely. And, and talk to us a little bit about what we have there in the way of types of crustaceans, more specifically ones that would be commonly referred to as crawfish. Crayfish. Yeah. So uh, from what we've, what I've seen in the past was with Poos getting was a lot of those electric blue crayfish, which are completely fine to own. Um, in terms of prohibited species now, one thing that Poos is very great at, along with the other additional pet shops, is they do uh, label the species name on their tags. So if you do, you know, come across, you know, Proclamius, Clarkii, you know, you know, hey, uh, probably shouldn't buy that guy. And, yeah, you, know, you may want to just bring it up to the pet store owner like, hey, you know, these are prohibited. Might not want to order these anymore. Yeah. No, I, I remember uh, there was one situation where uh, some crawfish came in from a supplier, um, really beautifully colored. Like, it almost looked, they looked like the American flag. They had blue, they had white, they had red on them. They were absolutely gorgeous. They were a nice size. Uh, paid a hefty price for them. Uh, had no idea they were illegal. Got them in. Had them in the store. And I got visited by a DNR officer. And he was like, you may not be aware of this, but um, we're going to need to take this with us. And I was like, feel free. Take it. because." Uh, and then uh, they were nice enough to send uh, an expert from MSU um, that was an expert in crawfish identification and came in and just gave us like a, I don't know, 20-minute tutorial on on how to actually identify them and uh, what to look for. And, and that was certainly appreciated because the last thing we want to do is get these characters out. And the last thing you need to be doing is chasing red, white, and blue crawfish, right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> uh, so the other thing that we do have, and maybe you've noticed them, maybe you haven't, maybe we had them, to, I'm sure we had some of them when you were there. We we, we have these uh, Mexican uh, dwarf crawfish, which are kind of cool, and if somebody has a tank and wants to put crawfish in with other fish, these guys tend to fit the bill. Um, they're they're generally a red color. Have you have you noticed those when you were in, Aaron? I do. I love those little guys. Yeah. And they, they can be fun. Uh, you must admit the uh, crawfish are kind of smart. Um, they they don't, you know, you get them in a tank and you get to watch their personality. They, they're pretty uh, interesting characters, uh, mainly because they're kind of social in a group. They, they kind of have to figure out how to kind of, co- you know, communicate and look for food and such. So they're really fun to watch. Absolutely. Uh, the ones that we carry are generally a red color, and they would work well in a tank with at least a fish big enough that they can't grab a hold of them and take them down. But maybe talk a little bit about the larger crawfish, like the electric blue crawfish. What would you keep those in with, or would you keep them in with anything? And what 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 would happen? Uh, being you know a larger crayfish species, you know they definitely have a little bit more of a threat to perhaps some fishy neighbors you'd like to include in the uh, aquarium. So uh, probably best left uh, alone or either another crayfish in there, of course. Appropriate tank size is a must. And, and uh, the one thing I notice is, you know, they're just kind of by de- definition this, like, ambush predator. You know, they're going to, if any fish gets near them, uh, they're going to go wild on them and, and grab them and hold them. And just like they hold your finger and pinch your hand, uh, uh, they have a tendency of pulling down just about anything. So, Oh, yeah. 
Well, Aaron, we want to thank you so much for all the information you shared with us. We really appreciate it, and we wish you the best of luck with your research. We've been talking this morning with Aaron Sullivan, who is a researcher for Michigan State University, and uh, we look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. And we'll be back right after the break on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show on 1320 WILS. Welcome back to the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show, your number one source for information on taking care of your pets. Here are your hosts, Rick Proust and Lee Cohen. We're back here with the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. And Rick, for this last segment, I wanted to ask you some questions uh, because you do have some experience in dealing not just with the crayfish, but with a number of other fish. And the thing that concerned me in that conversation was, again, how these invasive species sometimes can get here, not by their own wind, but by people bringing them here, and then they somehow get out into the wild. Talk a little bit about how do we prevent that from happening and why people should not release animals into the wild. That just is not the way to go. Yeah. Uh, You know, for me, it kind of goes without saying, right? But I think that generally speaking, I've been doing this long enough and I'm in the crossroads with customers coming in. And emotions are probably mixed and, you know, sometimes I think even well-intended, right? They're, they have an animal, they, for whatever reason, they can't keep it anymore. They're, you know, for you know, so-and-so is not there anymore, doesn't take care of it or whatnot. And somehow through some stroke of lack of genius, they think, well, maybe putting it in the wild, you know, letting it go free, uh, might be the you know free willy kind of thing, right? Like maybe that that's the right with decision. a pigeon, maybe. Yeah. So <laughs> well, and the problem is is that uh, as we see in this situation, uh, whether it was the pet industry or whether it was uh, you know, people coming up from down south uh, for uh, some crawfish, yeah, it fry could be southern restaurants, right? And when you when they when they ship them in, they don't ship a couple of them in. The, you know, you in order to have a fry, right? You know, you're gonna a boil, if you will. You're gonna bring up like you know fifty or a hundred, and so one way or another, those got out, right? And and we know that goldfish and koi will show up in people's waterways in Michigan, as far as fish goes. What we've witnessed, to, right kind of invade our shores that have been problematic from the pet trade have been things like goldfish and koi, you know, things that can truly handle the cold water. We have, we have one of the natural um, barriers that uh, make it to some extent helpful. Um, Unlike the crawfish, uh, many of these fish that we carry are tropical species, you know, that they they only live in Amazon stuff. They can't take the cold. The thing is, is that nobody including myself, should make a judgment call that makes one think that they could go ahead and put it in a natural waterway. You know, well, there's already goldfish in there already, or whatever the reason is. Just as a practice, just as a ethics, just as a principle, we all need to live by the rule, nothing, nothing at all, plant or fish, right, should be put in our natural waterways that don't belong there, that aren't natural to those environments. So... Um, you know, leave it up to the scientists uh, to add uh, 
salmon to our Great Lakes. Leave it up to them. Right. But beyond that, beyond those type of introductions that might be, uh, you know, researched and and uh, done for specific reasons, we need to stay away from that at all possibilities. Um, well, I'll tell you what I find interesting, Rick, is that a couple weeks ago we had a conversation about the little micro tanks, and we talked about the shrimp that you could have in there. And now dealing with crayfish as well, it's interesting to me because I don't know if people necessarily thought of those the same way they think of regular fish. Well, I, I do. I do want to comment on that because sometimes the hobby of keeping fish especially in small tanks like that, can be elevated to such a level when you watch characters like shrimps, miniature crawfish, and believe it or not, snails. Mm -hmm. There are types of snails that are both legal here in Michigan and fun to put in your tanks that are just amazing to watch. They'll kind of crawl up on top of a large plant or plastic plant or rock or decoration, and then they kind of throw themselves out and just slowly glide to the bottom, and mm-hmm. it's fun to watch. And then, then they then they land, and and they just slow, methodically, just work their way towards. If you have children and you want something that's really fun for them to watch, something that can kind of be a babysitter, if you will, something that can allow a child to kind of explore nature, kind of from a perspective different than what they may have thought or you may have thought that was ever possible. Shrimps, snails, and crawfish are three. One, top sellers for us, you know, and great at captivating the interest of the young mind because they just have a very fun, even trying to catch them can be difficult. A fish is pretty easy to kind of just grab. With a shrimp, it can go backwards, it can go forwards, it can flip up, it can flip down. (laughs) It's kind of the difference between like a helicopter and a plane, you know what I mean? They can go every direction possible. And when they're in the tank and you're watching them, it too is pretty fascinating to watch. They can live in any cavity, any spot. They tend to oftentimes reproduce rather easily in a tank so they can get into the idea of reproduction. Um, All of this works really well in a 10, 5-gallon tank. You know, if you have a countertop, you can have fun. Well, I'm not meaning to knock my friend the angelfish or the gouramis or the tiger barbs that so many people do put in their freshwater tanks, but I just think that so few people that I've known have known or gone down this path. And I just think how original and how unique, and like you said, how much fun can it be to have these unusual creatures in your tank and when people come over and see them i've got to imagine that they're just i don't know if mesmerized is the right word well, but well 10 years ago and i'm guessing right it might be as much as 15 years ago it might be as little as 8 years ago this hobby of colorful shrimp keeping kind of landed on our shores here in the united states and i didn't realize there were Shrimps. Now, these shrimps are measuring at a total of like maybe one inch, right? And so not, nothing, pretty, nothing pretty big. <laughs> but they're so cool because you'll have bright blue ones, bright red ones. You will have blue and white ones. You'll have red and white ones. You'll have orange ones. You'll have yellow ones. You'll have green ones. You'll have black ones. You'll have blue ones. They've been breeding these particular shrimp because they are really productive and they have lots of babies. And so popping different colors out of that, grabbing those and start reproducing those, there's just a 
just an amazing collection of colors that you can get from breeding shrimp. That becomes a fun hobby in and of itself. And then, again, I'll get back to it. They are just fun to watch. And there are some fish that you can keep with them. So shrimps for sure. Uh, And the crawfish we sell a bit more because they can be kept better with fish that might otherwise pick on them. But they're not so big that they can grab fish and take them down. So the dwarf crawfish uh, tend to be popular. And then we where we grow, where we sell the full-size crawfish, uh, you know, maybe a two, two-and-a-half-incher, is when you want to just have something really fantastic, but maybe a tank to its own. In that, But bright, bright blue. They call it an electric blue crawfish, and there's now a white version that we carry. They call it electric blue crawfish for a reason. It is electric blue. Right. Now, do they require any kind of special soil or anything on the bottom for them versus regular fish because there's a gravel that you'll typically put down for a regular fish tank. But again, because I've found them in the wet mud of the lake I live in, is there any consideration like that that goes into it? Well, there's a few, you know, whenever you get into any of these animals, you might ask a few questions like what would be the best substrate? Right, um, on the bottom. And we're not going to go with a mud substrate because that could be a real mess. But it might be a sandier substrate for things like the shrimps because they can really get off on, like, grabbing the sand particles and cleaning them off. And it's it's kind of a smooth uh, something. And they can also, part of their life cycle is when they they have these eggs on them, then the, 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 the parent likes to like bury them down in the soil when they come come off the body, and then they work themselves up from that. And so something of finer grid can work a lot better than something more coarse. Interesting. Well, it's, it's a fascinating conversation, Rick, and it tells me that I wish I would have paid more attention back when I was collecting fish and keeping fish well, tanks. I don't think they would have been there for you. I don't think you missed anything. I okay. think it's a kind of a current thing. So if anybody's been in a hasn't been in a pet shop for the last five or ten years, you need to come into a pet shop and kind of check out the shrimp. Well, I agree with that because they're really neat looking, great colors. And again, you put some of those lights in that are new to the trade as well. And boy, you've got yourself an entertaining thing to look at. And that's what it's all about. So uh, it's been A fascinating conversation, Rick, but I'm afraid we're out of time. So on behalf of our producer, Bruce Warner, and my co-host in the studio, Rick Bruce, this is Lee Cohen wishing everyone a great weekend and a great weekend. We'll talk next weekend on the MidMichigan Pet Expert Talk Show. Make up your mind. Decide to walk with me. Around the lake tonight